Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. My name is Dr Stacey Harris and I'm one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. Today we're joined by Sophie Constantinou, who is going to do another MRC-PCH clinical examination podcast. This time it's on the upper and lower neurological examination and you guys are in for a treat. I learned loads by listening to this podcast and I actually don't quite know how I managed to pass my exams. Enjoy. Hello everyone, I'm Sophie and welcome to this revision podcast for the MRCPCH clinical exam. Episode 5 is on the upper and lower limb neurological exam. So for those of you who haven't joined us before, each episode we focus on one potential station in the clinical exam and this week is the neuro exam. Last time we actually covered cranial nerves and eyes, so if you're looking for that part, go back and listen to the previous podcast. This one is just upper and lower limb neuro. As always, we're going to start with our top tips. After that, we will revise the structure of the neuro exam itself. Then we're going to focus down on some key areas of the examination, which this week are gait, cerebellar signs, the differences between upper and lower motor neuron signs, and neurocutaneous syndromes. You'll be able to test your knowledge with our pub quiz episode on the neuro exam, as well as download a PDF of the key points from this episode on the website. So what are our top tips for the upper and lower limb neuro exam? Hi, I'm Gemma, one of the paediatric neurology registrars. I've been asked to give you some tips for the neurological examination for the clinical exam. Um, So I think it's worth thinking about this in terms of the types of patients you're likely to get in the exam. And obviously the types of patients are going to be stable ones and cooperative children. So I think the main groups of patients are those with a hemiparesis for whatever reason, children with spina bifida or those who've had spinal cord surgery and children with neuromuscular conditions. So I'll try and keep it really brief, but there are some tips that I got told I found really helpful. So I'll start with there's a couple of like key don't forgets. So number one, don't forget to look at the spine. So when you have a look at the spine, I'd make a comment about the presence or absence of any scars or the presence or absence of scoliosis. The presence of a scar will really help put together your neurological findings and gives you a level of neurological damage and narrows down the diagnosis significantly. Um, The presence of scoliosis isn't as groundbreaking, but at least you won't have missed a big scar or abnormality. And it just gives you a clue as to how good their general muscle tone and posture is. Um, And then number two, don't forget to measure the head circumference and look at the growth chart. Uh, This can be really key again to helping narrow down your differentials. And then some other really useful advice I got given, which you may or may not feel is helpful, is to examine the gait in the first instance if you're asked to do a peripheral nervous system examination. And the reason for this is that the exam is a time limited situation. And so if you do that first, it gives you a really good idea of the functional ability and then gives you really important clues as to what the rest of your examination will uncover. So it's sort of the most findings for such a a short period of time. Um, Obviously, before doing this, I'd check first that the patient is actually able to walk and safe to do so by asking their parent or checking with with the patient if they're an older child. Um, 
And when you look at the gate, I think sometimes it can be confusing about which side is the affected side if they've got a hemiparesis. Um, and there are some simple things that you can do to get your eye in on that. Um, so there are three key things that I look for when examining a child with a hemiparesis. And the, the most key is to look at the arm swing. So there won't be a normal arm swing on the affected side. And if it's a really mild case, that might be the only thing that's really noticeable. For more severe cases, you might notice that the patient will swing the affected leg in a circular motion at the hip to bring the leg round and in front of them. And they might have a foot drop on the affected side. I would suggest typing hemiparesis and gait into YouTube and watching the videos there. There's loads that come up that are really helpful. Another really useful thing I got told is that for the children with a really mild hemiparesis, you might actually not notice a big difference in their power when you examine them, but there'll be a difference in their reflexes and their planters, and as, as I mentioned, their arm swing and their gait. And then the other tip is for the neuromuscular children, my key bit of advice or sort of encouragement is that if you can't elicit their reflexes and you've tried with reinforcement techniques, so gritting the teeth, pulling on interlocked fingers and saying now when you tap them, then it's probably because the reflexes are diminished and you're not wrong. So don't spend too long trying. I'd, I'd have a couple of goes with um, reinforcement and then I'd be fairly confident that the child doesn't actually have reflexes or has reduced reflexes. And the last bit of advice I have is a book that is really useful that um, I did the Australian clinical exams and this book was widely used there and it breaks down each case as a presentation. So like macrocephaly, microcephaly um, and lists all the examination findings. It's a really excellent resource for both neurology and other specialties. Um, and it's called Examination Pediatrics by Wayne Harris. It's a grey and green book. I've got a copy if anybody wants to borrow it. And I think those are the main things in brief. Good luck for the exam. Thank you. Okay, let's go over the structure of the neuro exam. We're going to begin from a general inspection, but remember that in the exam, they may only ask you to focus on one or two aspects of the examination. So just make sure you're doing what's asked of you. And if you're not sure, just check. To start, it's wiper. Wash your hands, introduce yourself, ask for permission from the patient and the parent, expose the patient, which for this examination should be with a patient in shorts, maintaining patient dignity as able. You should start with the patient standing up if they're able and then walking before positioning them on the bed. First, inspect. Have a look around the room. Are there any walking aids or orthotics lying around? Is the child in a wheelchair? Note if it's a high powered wheelchair or not. Next, have a look at your patient with them standing in front of you, if they're able to. Take a look at their posture. Do they have leg scissoring, indicative of spastic diplegia? Or is there a paucity of movement on one side of the body, indicating hemiplegia? Or can you see an overall palsy of movement, which may be due to something more global, like spinal muscular atrophy? Then step closer to your patient and inspect their arms, legs and face more closely. And don't forget the backs of the arms. I usually use the mnemonic dwarfs to remember what to look for in neuro exams. 
You can also use this mnemonic to help with the inspection part of any MSK exam as well. So DWARFS stands for D, deformity or dysmorphism, W, wasting, A, asymmetry, R, rashes, F, fasciculations, and S is both scars and skin. And by skin, I mean the neurocutaneous stigmata you might see. You may see scars from tendon release procedures, or you could see deformities such as a champagne bottle leg and a high foot arch, which could be indicative of a hereditary motor or sensory neuropathy, such as Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome. After inspecting, you want to get your patient to walk if they're able to. I ask them to do this at the start before asking them to move to the bed, as I just think it looks a bit neater. First, ask them to walk normally and then on the sides of their feet. Note if there is any spasticity to their gait or if there is a hemiplegia. Then ask them to perform heel toe or tandem walking. Then it's up on tiptoes and then up on heels. If all of that's normal and there's enough space to run, ask them to do so. After they're done with their walking, ask the patient to stand in front of you and perform Romberg's test. Next, get the patient to lie down on the bed and systematically test their tone, power, coordination, reflexes and sensation in both their upper and lower limbs. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail as I'm sure you all know how to do this. Just a few pointers on each part. The first thing to say is to remember to compare like for like. Regarding tone, I'm sure you all know how to examine that, but just the key thing is to make sure that the child is relaxed or distracted by something, as that's a really important sign to be able to help you distinguish between upper and lower motor neuron lesions. Remember when you're testing their power to isolate each muscle group. And when you're practicing on patients, Think about which muscles you're actually testing when you're testing against resistance, as if there's a defect, you need to be able to tell the examiner which muscles were weaker and by how much. It's really important to try to use the MRC grading to help you with this and also when presenting your findings. With regards to coordination, just to remind you that this in the upper limb is both the finger nose test as well as dystidocokinesis and with the lower limb by the heel knee shin test. Reflexes should be again tested with the child relaxed and can be reinforced with a gendrasic manoeuvre. Remember that the biceps reflex is carried through C5, C6, supinator is C6 and triceps is C7, knee jerk is L3, L4 and ankle S1, S2. And make sure you don't forget the plantar reflex. So just to a brief, brief bit of revision, those older than one years, the plantar reflex is downgoing in normal patients, but in under one, and if you've got an upper motor neuron lesion, those planters are upgoing. Finally, regarding sensation, in real life, we often grossly test sensation using light touch, don't we? But in the exam, this is the time to ask for a piece of cotton wool. Remember that light touch is carried by both spinothalamic tracts as well as the dorsal posterior column nuclei 
So if you're short of time, you can just do this one test. In an ideal world though, you'd probably test the spinothalamic tracts using a pinprick or a neurotip, and then you'd test the dorsal posterior column nuclei separately using vibration or proprioception if the child is able to tolerate those modalities. So that brings you to the end of the neuro exam. To finish, thank the patient, wash your hands, take your stethoscope off, turn to face the examiner and say, to complete my examination, I would like to plot the height and weight on an appropriate chart and perform a cranial nerve and eye exam. Then just present your findings to the examiner. That leaves you with three minutes with the examiner to ask you questions. And that's the end of the neuro exam. Next up is our focus on sections. Focus on gait. So in this exam, you do get the patient to do a lot of walking during the station. And it's easy to forget why each part of the gait examination is tested. So I thought we'd just take a minute to revise the pathology that you might see, as gait is an area that we don't often formally test in real life. The first bit of walking is the heel-toe or tandem walk. What you're actually looking for here is ataxia. And remember that ataxia can be due to a variety of causes, for example, cerebellar dysfunction, or it can be due to weakness because of a neuromuscular problem, or it can be sensory in origin. Then it's tiptoe walking. If a patient can't do this, it might mean that the S1 or S2 myotome is affected. Similarly with walking on their heels, if they can't do that, then the L4, L5 myotomes might be affected. If all of that's normal, as I say, and if there's enough space to run, it's good to get the child to do that. And that's because some children with cerebral palsy may compensate for their deficits while they're walking. But if you ask them to run, this can bring out the more subtle diplegias or hemiplegias. Just a brief note about Romberg's test. Romberg's test should be performed with the patient's feet together and the eyes closed. Remember that this test is positive when the patient's unsteadiness only occurs with the eyes closed and not open. And what that means is that the ataxia is sensory in nature. The three things that can give you a positive Romberg's test comes from a disturbance of either one, proprioception, two, visual disturbance, or three, disturbance in the vestibular apparatus. You basically need those three things to be able to balance properly. Remember that if the patient is unsteady with both the eyes open and the eyes closed, you're more likely to have a cerebellar lesion, although those both sensory and cerebellar lesions can coexist as well. Focus on cerebellar signs. So in peds, you probably don't do a formal cerebellar exam on the patients that you clerk in CAU, as most patients don't have cerebellar problems in comparison with adult patients. So hopefully this little section will be all you need to revise cerebellar signs before the exam. I learnt the cerebellar signs using the mnemonic Danish at med school, but remember that you also really have to do a Romberg's test, as this can just help you confirm that the patient's got an upper motor neuron cerebellar lesion and not a sensory issue. So Danish is another mnemonic, which stands for D is dystidocokinesis, A is ataxia, N is nystagmus, I 
intention tremor, S is for slurred or staccato speech, and H is hypotonia or hyporeflexia. These are basically the items that you need to check off during a focused cerebellar exam, and you can tag these things on if you've not managed to do all of them as part of your um, neuro exam, if you think that the patient might have a cerebellar um, lesion. In real life, cerebellar signs are really worrying in children, and if you see a child with any of the above signs who was previously well, you want to be doing a scan of their head pretty much immediately. The thing you're worried about most would be a tumour, probably less likely a stroke, and if there's an um, appropriate history, then also trauma. The other causes that are important to remember for exam purposes are congenital causes such as Friedrich's ataxia or Arnold Chiari malformation, acquired causes like MS, or drug causes like phenytoin or lead poisoning. I'll just spend a minute reminding you about Friedrich's ataxia. So Friedrich's ataxia gives you both cerebellar signs and a peripheral neuropathy, as it affects both the pyramidal tracts as well as the peripheral nerves. That means that you're going to get a positive Romberg's test, as the ataxia that these patients have got is sensory in nature, it affects those peripheral nerves, but you will also have hyporeflexia, upgoing planters and nystagmus, so those are cerebellar signs. You may also have other clues that this patient might have Friedrich's ataxia because they might have pescavus and kyphoscoliosis. Often when you have a case like that in the exam, the examiner would ask you something like, is there anything else you would like to examine? And if you think that the patient's got Friedrich's ataxia, you really want to make sure that you're feeling for and listening to the heart, as these children also often have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Focus on upper and lower motor neuron lesions. The differences between upper and lower motor neuron lesions can be really tricky to remember as just a list of signs with only subtle differences. So I've come up with a way of trying to remember the differences using three rules, which should hopefully make it easier to recall and think through logically when you're seeing that patient in front of you in the exam. So the first rule, any lesion, upper or lower motor neuron will give you weakness as if you think about it there's something wrong with your nerves in some way. If you're weak that means you've got reduced power. Because you're weak and you have reduced power you're also going to be wasted as if you don't lose, use it you lose it. So weakness and reduced power and wasting are signs that are both common to upper and lower motor neuron lesions as basically there's something wrong with your nervous system. That's the first rule. The second rule is to remember that in an upper motor neuron lesion, two things are up, and in a lower motor neuron lesion, two things are down. And these things are tone and reflexes. So in upper motor neuron lesions, you get increased tone, increased reflexes. In a lower motor neuron lesion, you get reduced tone and reduced reflexes. So that's rule two, two things up and two things down. The third rule is to remember that each kind of lesion has a bonus sign. And for upper motor neuron lesions, the bonus sign is clonus, which if you think about it, goes with increased reflexes. And for lower motor neuron lesions, the bonus sign is fasciculations. So just to recap the three rules, first rule, the thing that's common to both 
is weakness or reduced power and therefore wasting. Second rule is two things up, two things down. And the third rule is that there's a bonus sign for each, which is clonus for upper motor neuron lesions and fasciculations for lower motor neuron lesions. I think that's really important because what you're trying to do in the short time you have in the exam is basically distinguish whether you've got an upper or a lower motor neuron lesion and that should hopefully get you to the diagnosis. So if there is a bit of the exam that you should spend time on, it's tone and reflexes. Focus on neurocutaneous syndromes. So in our last section this week, I thought I'd just draw your attention to the two main neurocutaneous conditions that you might see in the exam. You should really know these inside out and be able to have a really good chat about these conditions with the examiner as they're really common exam cases. This is also why exposing the patient fully is really important as not spotting the skin signs can lead you to go off on the wrong track. The first condition that I want to spend a couple of minutes on is neurofibromatosis. To revise the skin lesions, they are axillary and inguinal freckling, neurofibromas or plexiform neurofibromas, and cafe au lait macules. If asked what else you would examine, the patient's eyes are really important. You basically want to check their visual fields as they can have optic nerve gliomas. Mention that you would get an ophthalmologist to look for leash nodules on the slit lamp and also examine them for bony lesions. They are kyphoscoliosis and tibial bowing. The subspecialist who might be seeing this patient, in addition to the neurologist, the ophthalmologist and the paediatrician, may also include paediatric surgeons, orthopods, ENT and plastics, psychologists or psychiatrists potentially, audiologists and endocrinologists. The second condition is tubular sclerosis and I'm sure you're familiar with the hypopigmented ash leaf shaped macules that are best seen under a wood lamp. The key thing that you're going to spot in these patients on walking into the room before you expose them is facial angiofibromas of adenoma sebation. And make sure that if this is a teenage patient you're not mistaking it for acne. Other skin lesions that are important to look for are periungal fibromas, chagrin patches, and these patients can also have cafe au lait macules. In comparison to NF1 and 2, the pres presence of learning disability in tuberous sclerosis is much higher, and there is a high incidence of seizures as well in up to 70%. So to the above list of MTT specialties for NF, I'd probably add cardiologist and nephrologist to this, as these children ha can have rhabdomyomas and renal angiomas. So that's it for today. My thanks to Dragon Bites for hosting this podcast, as always. Check out the London School of Peds MRCPCH videos and refresh your knowledge on neurocutaneous syndromes by doing a quick Google search. If you can, try to get to a neurology or a neurodisability clinic or a community peds clinic when they're back up and running. These are really great places to revise your neuro exam, get some really good feedback from consultants, as well as some first-hand experience of the vital role of the MDT in caring for these patients. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts. And remember, you can download the companion worksheet from the website for the key points from this episode. You will be able to test your knowledge with the NeuroPub quiz. Thank you, everybody, for listening and see you next time for more MRCPCH revision.
Thank you so much, Sophie, for going through that with us. And also a massive thank you to Dr. Gemma Howells, who who is one of the paediatric grid trainees um, here in Wales. Those tips were awesome. Join us next time. And check out our website, www.dragonbitespodcast.com.